This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We're looking this morning at the topic of non-violence and enemy love. Yes, this is going to be fun. Um, but before we do, let me tell you a quick story. Michael Hart is a, a, an author a writer and author who set out to answer the question, who are the most 100 influential people on our global history? Yeah, seeking to answer the question, who has had the most influence on humanity? And in his book, he sets out to justify some of the reasons for why he's chosen who he's chosen. And his top three most influential people of all time are this. In position number three... Jesus of Nazareth, our Jesus, our King, the one that we worship, the one we talk about every single Sunday because Anchor is all about Jesus. He came in at number three. Number two was the phenomenally gifted and amazingly talented scientist Isaac Newton, who himself was a Christian, came in at number two, profoundly impacted modern science. And then number one was Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. And as you read that list, you think, oh, that must actually have been a fairly difficult book to write because there are some very passionate people who would argue for and against his version of, say, the top 10 or the top 3 or top 100. I imagine it would be some difficult decisions to make, such as, why did you put Jesus as number 3 and not number 1? That's my question. And the, the you know, Muslims are probably like, oh, of course you put Muhammad as number 1. He is the most influ-. Interestingly, two of the top three are religious people, religious figures, and one is a scientific figure who happened to be a Christian. So, I mean, even in and of itself, that speaks of the significant place that religion still has on 21st century Western culture. But my question is, how come Jesus doesn't get number one spot? And Michael Hart answers that question, and he says this. I think the quote is on the screen behind me. Now these ideas, and by these ideas he means the idea of loving your enemies. The passage we're about to look at that Jesus will unpack for us. Now these ideas, which were not a part of the Judaism of Jesus' day, nor of most other religions, are surely amongst the most remarkable and original ethical ideas ever presented. If they were widely followed, I would have had no hesitation placing Jesus first in this book. But the truth is, they are not widely followed. In fact, they're not even generally accepted. Most Christians consider the instruction to love your neighbor as, at most, an ideal which may be realized in some perfect world, but one which is not a reasonable guide to conduct in the actual world we live in. We do not normally practice it. We do not expect others to practice it. We do not teach our children to practice it. Jesus' most distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. Wow. That stings a bit, doesn't it? As Jesus' followers who want to take him at his word and live it out, that kind of stings. Are these... Instruction. Is this manifesto that we read of in Matthew 5 to 7 
an unrealistic guide to life. Is that what we find there? Some version of humanity that is reserved for a perfect world. Maybe when Jesus returns. Are these at best intriguing but untried realities? Like have God's people failed to live these things out? And if we're not living like this, why? How come? What has gone wrong? Well, I want to unpack that this morning for us and offer us a different version of reality to the one that Michael Hart offers us here. But we've been camped out in Matthew chapter 5 for these last few weeks and you will have noticed a pattern occurs as we read through these verses. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I tell you the truth. What he gives us here in Matthew 5 are six examples of what it looks like to be salt and light. Matthew 5, 16 to 18, casts this beautiful, compelling vision of what the church should look like. Light in the darkness, assault preserving goodness, pushing back the darkness in the world. And then he gives us six examples of what that looks like. And this morning, we're going to look at the final two examples, non-violence, non-retaliation, and enemy love. Jesus is driving towards the heart. He is pursuing a greater righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, a righteousness that is a heart righteousness. And so he will say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And, and to be honest, what we're about to read, it really grates against our inbuilt, justice-loving, easily offended 21st century DNA that we have. These verses are hard. And, and to acknowledge that, the famous scholar and theologian John Stott says, Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian countercultural more obvious Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. And so as we come to these verses, we actually need God's help to allow us to sit humbly enough to hear and receive what God says to us this morning. So I'm going to pray that he would do that, that every single person here would be impacted by the word through the Spirit this morning. So please join me as I pray. God, we are humbled by the example of Jesus. And to be honest, these verses, they cut against the grain of how every single culture has ever lived in the history of this world. And so we want to refuse to believe the lie that we are wiser than you this morning and plead with you. Help us to sit humbly under your word. Help us to receive what you are saying to us this morning and transform us by your spirit as difficult and as costly as that may be today. We pray that you would speak now and as your people, help us to figure out how to live this out by the power of your spirit following the example of Jesus. We pray this for the good of our city that needs a tangible example of your love. We pray this for the good of our church which needs to live your commands out. Ultimately, we pray this for your good and for your glory. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people said, 
Amen. What up? This is, I've, I've been challenged by these verses this week. So let's go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. The first radical claim of the kingdom manifesto is non-violent, non-retaliation. Have a look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two with him. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. This uh, this is an Old Testament law that Jesus quotes you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this old covenant law, which we read in Leviticus and a few other places in the Torah, is, is specifically there as a protective measure against um, re- retributive revenge and violence that would come when someone has harmed you. And these are actually civil laws that were to be administered by the law courts. And so an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was there to ensure that whatever punishment was handed out met the crime. That you didn't have someone having their hand chopped off because they stole a loaf of bread. And what the Pharisees have done is they've taken these civic laws and they've twisted them and manipulated them to say that you can and you should take revenge in all matters of personal injustice and personal relationship. If someone hurts you, make sure you get them back to the equivalent amount. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. We've got a cultural version of that, don't we? Revenge is a dish best served cold. I mean, look, the reality is that it felt as good in Moses' time to get people back as it does today. There is that inbuilt desire within us to seek justice. And sometimes that desire is good, but sometimes that desire is perverted and twisted. And Jesus says, instead, I say to you, don't take matters in your own hands. Don't resist the evil one. Don't resist the evil one. What does Jesus mean there? That's a a pretty big statement. I think we need to interpret these verses and understand them in the context of Jesus' life. Because it seems as we read the rest of Matthew's gospel, we need a holistic picture of what Jesus is saying and living because he does resist evil. And he calls us, does he not, to resist the evil one? He resists the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who lay a heavy burden on the people. He forcefully resists them. He resists them when they try and take his life and push him off the cliff and kill him. He passes the crowd and walks through because his time has not yet come. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist the evil one? He means don't. Respond in retaliation. Don't set yourself up against them. Don't oppose them. Instead, respond with nonviolence, with non retaliation. And he gives four case studies or four scenarios of what he means by that. The four case studies are these a slap in the face, someone who's trying to sue you, someone who conscripts you, and someone who is begging from you or borrowing from you. 
The first scenario is the person who would slap you in verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A slap on the right cheek in the first century by a right-handed person, which most people were, would have been the equivalent of a backhanded slap across the face. So we're not talking a, a fist fight here. This is a slap across the face publicly as a slap of shame. Someone who is perhaps at the, the city gates in a disagreement or dispute and is slapped across the face in front of the elders of the city or in front of people as they come in and out of the city gates. Or in a court of law, someone who is slapped. The equivalent would be perhaps a very public and aggressive Facebook rant for the whole world to see, shaming this person for something that they had done wrong. A second example there is someone who is being sued. If someone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Now the fact that this person is being sued for their tunic tells us that this person is very poor. They have nothing else to be sued for other than the clothes that they are wearing. Now in the first century, most people uh, would have worn a long robe that would have um, effectively been their tunic and over the top of it, a heavy cloak that would have doubled as their blanket as they slept at night. And there is actually provision in the Old Testament law that you couldn't sue a poor person for their cloak. You couldn't withhold it from them because they needed it to stay warm at night. And so what Jesus is saying here is someone is suing you unfairly, unjustly in a court of law, and they want to sue you for your tunic, literally disrobed, give them your cloak, stand there naked and ashamed. Wow. Wow. Or what about the person who seeks to unjustly conscript you? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two with him. Go two miles. There was a, a law that I think was actually first introduced by the Persians that the Romans adopted that said if there was a Roman soldier carrying his military gear, he could conscript a Jewish citizen and force them to carry his gear for them one mile. We see this law enacted at the end of the Gospels, as the Roman soldiers are taking Jesus out to the place of the skull, Golgotha, and they force Simon of Cyrene, remember, to carry the cross because Jesus was so wounded and so fatigued that he couldn't carry it. And so they enacted that law and forced Simon of Cyrene, no arguments. Did anyone else find that strange? Why? How come he didn't decline because of this law? If someone forces you to carry their military gear... Go the extra mile. You imagine the moment where the Roman soldier conscripted someone to carry their gear. And one mile is the equivalent of a thousand steps. And the person carries it and they get to 90, 999, 1000. They take the gear off, they slam it on the floor and they're done. Spit on the gear and walk off. But the one day the Roman soldier asks a Christian to carry his backpack and he puts it on. 997, 998, 1,000, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. The power of that is incredible. The final example there, if someone begs from you or borrows from you, if anyone begs from you, I give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The beggar and the borrower here seem to lack the capacity to pay the person back. 
perhaps this person who is seeking to borrow money may be taking advantage of that law that requires the cancellation of debts in the seventh year. And it feels unfair. Like if I lend to this person, I know that they're going to take advantage of that. Perhaps that's behind this unjust case here. Jesus says, be generous. Give, do not withhold. Now these are, these are extreme hypothetical examples. Not quite as extreme as the ones we heard of a few weeks ago, right? Remember what Jesus says? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Not quite as extreme as that, but these are extreme hypotheticals. Jesus starts with an if clause before every single one of them. Now, because Jesus starts with an if, because this isn't a hypothetical, doesn't mean we can wriggle out of obedience to these commands. They are true nonetheless. Partly because Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount out. Jesus lived these commands. He doesn't give us these as intriguing possibilities of a future world. He expects us to live them out. And I think Jesus' life helps us interpret what is happening, what he means by this. Non-violence, non-retaliation. If you go to John chapter 18, you'll remember there Jesus is falsely tried and accused by the Jewish ruling court, the Sanhedrin, dragged before them. False witnesses are brought out to falsely accuse him of things he didn't do. And he is asked to respond as to his identity by the high priest. And Jesus responds... And the high priest's guard doesn't like what he said or the way he said it. And so he strikes Jesus in the face. And you remember how Jesus responds in that moment? He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't do what most prisoners who are facing an imminent death would do. Perhaps spit on the guard or lunge forward and lash out. This is what Jesus does. John 18, 23. If what I said is wrong... Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why did you strike me? That's the example that Jesus gives of what it looks like to live this out. To be the type of person who would not respond in revenge and retaliation and perhaps violence. He calls the injustice out, doesn't he? He says, if I'm wrong, tell me. If I'm not, why did you hit me? But he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't strike back. I want to suggest Jesus deserves to be number one on the list. And he desires us to imitate his life and obey these commands. This is not supposed to be an intriguing but untried possibility. This is... A whole new way for God's people to be human, to live under the kingdom of God. This is his kingdom manifesto. But you might think, what What about cases of abuse? What about domestic violence? Surely Jesus doesn't expect people to endure unjust suffering at the hands of an abuser. And I want to say to you that this verse is never, and please hear me, never a justification for anyone, particularly women who are caught in a violent relationship. This verse does not mean you stay. You leave. 
We need to interpret these scriptures in light of the rest of the scriptures, which have a consistent message of care and concern for the widow, for the poor, for the broken, for the oppressed. I mean, in the end, that's who God's people were, slaves in Egypt. This verse is never a justification. And if you're in a violent relationship, we will be the first to pack your bags and tell you to leave. And so what does Jesus mean? Perhaps what Jesus means here is that we would live like he lived exactly in that moment in John 18. That we would pursue justice. That we would call sin out. But that as we do that, we would seek to eradicate malice and revenge and violence from our hearts. I found uh, Charles Spurgeon's illustration of this really helpful. Because this doesn't happen from a position of weakness. You can only do this from a position of strength. He says there is a vast difference between an anvil and a doormat. An anvil receives the blows of a hammer, but an anvil is strong and immovable. A doormat gets trampled on. Jesus does not expect us to be doormats as his people. What he is calling for us is to be anvils, strong, not returning violence for violence, not returning an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but in some vastly countercultural way, to respond by blessing, to respond in love. Jesus' point is this. It's very natural for us to want to strike back. It's normal. It's human nature. It's almost a reflex that when someone injures us, we want to injure them. I mean, just think about perhaps you were driving to church this morning and someone cut in. Your normal response is to want to Honk the horn, flip the bird, run him off the road. And I mean, that just happened in an instant. And you're like, where did that rage come from? It's normal. To, I mean, listen, our kids do this every single freaking day. Hit and hit back, hit and hit back, hit and hit back. They spend so much time in time out, it's not funny. It's normal for us. It's natural to want to respond eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You hit me, I hit you back. Jesus is saying he's calling not for a natural response, but for a supernatural response. A spirit-empowered response that acts countercultural, completely different to the way the world would act. He's not calling for dutiful obedience to the law. He's seeking a greater righteousness. He's driving to our hearts. He's saying, go the extra mile. I mean, that's, that's a 21st century proverb. Go the extra mile that probably has its roots in this verse. Go the extra mile. God's people ought to excel. We ought to be creative. We ought to be overachievers when it comes to seeking to respond to injustice with blessing. That's Jesus' point. Now, how do we work this out? Because this is, this is difficult to try and figure out what you do. It's difficult to transverse that, that slight hill that you feel like you could fall off either side towards 
justice on one hand and, and holding firmly to that and being taken advantage of in the other. And so this week, I, I want to suggest that you figure this out in prayerful dependence on the Spirit and in the context of community. That's what we tried to do at our GC this week, and that's what I encourage you to do in your GCs if you're working through the manifesto discussion guides. It's to throw some scenarios out there and ask that God to help you figure this out. We kicked around the idea of what you would do in the context of your workplace where someone is stealing credit for your work. And in this context, I think it was creative work, right? So someone is taking credit for your creative ideas and claiming them as your own. What would you do in that moment? And we had a fascinating discussion of what it would look like to try and live like Jesus there. We've got to figure this out in prayerful dependence on the Spirit in the context of community. I'm not going to give you the answer for what we decided with because I want you guys to figure that out. But that's what we're about. We are a people who is called to live vastly countercultural. Now that doesn't mean that if there is a case of gross injustice, domestic violence, someone has taken advantage of you in a business scenario, that you don't prosecute them. Prosecution may be the loving thing. But what Jesus is driving at here is as we do that, we rid our hearts of the desire to punish and seek vengeance and have malice. We live by what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not seek revenge. For the Lord says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Justice is God's business, not ours. And so we entrust ourselves to a just and perfect God and seek to live like Jesus. So that's the first Difficult, radical way to live that Jesus gives us. The second is like it. The second example of total love is enemy love. Verse 42. Again, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hang on a sec. We don't find that in the Old Testament anywhere. That's not a law that Jesus is quoting there from Leviticus. No, this is one of the ways that the Pharisees and the scribes sought to twist the word of God in order to put a boundary around stuff to make it easier to obey. This is them trying to ignore the costly bits, right? And just as a warning, when you find yourself trying to wriggle out of obedience to the difficult, costly parts of the Word of God, pay attention. You're on dangerous ground. That is the ground that the Pharisees walked on every single day. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. This is why Jesus gets the question. Remember when he's teaching and someone comes to him and says, Good teacher, who is my neighbor? Do you remember that? Who is my because what they were trying to do was put a fence around the Jewish people, the people of God, and say, we love these people only and everyone else we are free to hate. And you've got to remember, in the first century, almost every other surrounding nation were Israel's enemies. The Romans were their enemies. The Samaritans were their enemies. The Assyrians, the Babylonians in past had been their enemies. Everyone. And what they wanted to do was love their people and hate everyone else. And again, doesn't that seem natural? Who doesn't love their friends 
and their neighbors and hate their enemies. It's quite natural to, to hate your enemy. I mean, look, perhaps maybe you're a little more sanctified than the rest of us. And you wouldn't say, well, I don't really hate them. I'm just indifferent towards them. Until they're in your face and making your life difficult, then perhaps that changes that. But it's normal, isn't it? To love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And Jesus says, don't hate, love, love your enemies and, and pray for them. And that's not the type of prayer that you find in the Psalms. Lord, darken their courts with your vengeance and wrath and make their life difficult. That's not the type of prayer that Jesus is talking about here. This is a prayer of blessing on them. Bless them. I've got to be honest with you, these, these verses are hard to live because everything in us wants to rage against a command like that. Love my enemy, pray for them. These verses are hard to obey until we see the motivation behind them. Have a look at verse 45. This is Jesus' motivation. So that, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see what Jesus is saying here. This is what motivates us. Being like God. And isn't that what we're about? Isn't that our driving purpose in life? Isn't that our passion? That we would be transformed by the Spirit to be made more and more like Jesus? Reflecting God's character? Here are some reasons. The first is when you do this, you resemble the Father. So that you may be sons and daughters of your father. Not that by loving people, you will achieve that status. That is, if you live this way, you will look like the father. You have the family likeness about you. Why? Because God is the one who loves and blesses his enemies. God is the one who sent us a beautiful sunny day today, an evidence of his grace. And he also sent that same sun and beauty of creation to ISIS and to North Korea. God is the God who loves indiscriminately with his common grace that he gives to every single person, just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous. And when we love our enemies, we're being like him. We're being God-like. That's the first reason. The second reason is, Jesus says there's nothing distinct. There's nothing salty. You're not living a a life of light in the darkness when you just love those who love you back. And he lists two examples, the Gentiles and the tax collectors. The two groups of people that the Jews hated more than anyone else. Maybe if you threw the Samaritans in there as well, you would have had the holy trifecta of hatred. But he says, look, even these people... Live by that motto. 
They love those who love them. They greet those who greet them. You're being just like everyone else. You're not being distinct at all. The motive here is to be like God. To be like Jesus. To be like God in a world that desperately needs to see God's love in action, not just hear it proclaimed. It's Jesus' point. The manifesto, his kingdom manifesto, ought to unleash people who would live this out so the world will see light, salt. These people are so different. How do they live like this? What motivates them to respond with love when they are wronged? That's Christ's vision for his people. And what a powerful one it is. And then we get to verse 48. This verse that has kind of boggled my mind this week. But this is kind of a hinge in, in the narrative so far in this sermon. As we begin to shift from these six examples that Jesus gives into chapter 6, he says this in verse 48. And it's kind of a summary of everything that he's been talking about since the start of chapter 5. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was like, that's, that's impossible. How can we do that? But that word perfect there can be translated complete or whole, or without blemish. And it describes the type of person who is blameless in their integrity. It describes the type of person who has a surpassing righteousness, one that surpasses the Pharisees, who is whole, like God is whole. There is, there's not this duplicit, hip, hypocritical nature about us. We are whole. We practice what we preach. We live these things out. Be perfect. Be whole, therefore, as your heavenly Father is whole. And in a heart of integrity when it comes to the commands of Jesus. The reality is that Jesus actually lives what he preaches. Most of us really struggle to do that, don't we? Practice what we preach. Christians are hypocrites. Yes, we are. Join us. Everyone is. No one lives consistently. Except for Jesus. He literally practices what he preaches here in Matthew chapter 5. Because he never asks us to do something that he doesn't do himself. We've already mentioned John 18 as Jesus responds in non-violent, non-retaliative, but calling for justice when the high priest guard slaps him across the face. But this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. As he's addressing exile, people have been scattered because of persecution. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one, to one who judges justly. Think, think for a second how easy it would have been for Jesus to annihilate the people that were falsely accusing. I mean, you remember that moment in the garden when they come and Jesus says, who are you looking for? 
And they say, Jesus. And he, he utters one word, or two words maybe. I am he. And all of the guards fall down flat. He, I mean, literally, he could call down legions of angels to destroy these people. Those people who mocked him on the cross. He could have smited them with a bolt of lightning from heaven. He could have spat in the faces of the people that sought to punish him. Push a crown of thorns on his head. The men who divided his garments and took his tunic. And yet he responds with non-retaliation. Or Jesus, you'll notice, also prays for his enemies. This is what it says in Luke 23. As they're crucifying Jesus, when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, in the most profound prayer ever uttered, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. It's the very men that beat Jesus, whipped the flesh off his back, spat on his face, pressed a crown of thorns, taunted and mocked him, stripped him naked, hung him on a cross. And in that very moment, Jesus Praise a prayer of blessing on them. Wow. And in the ultimate act of total love, Jesus doesn't just bless the enemies who crucified him, but the enemies who stood against him. Since the day Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and rejected God's goodness. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if why we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we were reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? There is no higher act of love. There is no more total love. No one has loved to a greater extent than the Father giving His Son to bless his enemies. We deserved judgment, hell, and wrath. And what does God give us? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, relationship with Him. That is total love. It's the most selfless act of love ever, ever given. And this morning, I want to plead with you, if if you're not a Christian, then don't remain God's enemy. He has literally crossed the universe to show you that He loves you, that He, wanna, he wants to bless you. He has taken the initiative as the offended party to step into the mess and sort it out so that you can have a relationship. I plead with you, don't stay an enemy with God. He wants to be a friend. He has sent Christ so that you could be a friend.
But if you are a Christian here this morning, someone who says, yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, I live under the authority of the scriptures. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus is both our, our standard to live by, but he is also the source that empowers us to live this way. For this is impossible in and of ourselves. What seems impossible to do, a standard of living that is so beyond this world it almost seems foolish, is possible only by the empowering presence of the Spirit as He transforms our hearts and minds. This is God's call for us to be His sons and daughters. And to live this way in a world that needs to see, not just hear. We can proclaim the good news. And we need to proclaim the good news. But our world needs to see this lived out. This is not an intriguing but untried suggestion. My guess is that Michael Hart is potentially focusing on some fairly global historic events that have said Christians don't live by this. But perhaps he's failed to see the everyday examples of people who've lived this out consistently. People who have responded in grace and love. People who have sought to bless. I know because I've heard some of your stories of how you've done this. Stories like the story of um, St. James Church in Kenilworth. On the 24th of, 23rd of July, 1993, the parish of St. James Kenilworth gathered to worship Jesus, much the same as we are this morning. God's people gathered, about a thousand of them, in the room together. And inside that church building, the voices of God's people could be heard declaring His praises, whilst three men burst into that auditorium with semi-automatic weapons and opened fire on God's people and lobbed grenades into the congregation. Eleven people were brutally murdered in cold blood that day. Fifty people were severely injured and countless hundreds of others were damaged by shrapnel that just tore through the congregation. One of the couples that happened to be there that day were a couple by the name of Davy and Marika. They were core team members of that church. They served faithfully. And Marika, Davy's wife, was fatally wounded that Sunday by the gunman. And the pastor recalls standing at the front of the church, looking down, seeing Davy nurse his dying wife until the paramedics arrived. And she died in that church. As Davy walked out to the car park that morning, in what could only be described as a moment of careless reporting, a reporter stuck a camera in front of Davy's face and said, how do you feel about your, your wife being shot dead? And the words that rolled off his tongue are so incredibly profound and can only have been inspired by the Spirit of God in that moment. He said, I will love my enemies. I will pray for them. 
I will never, ever seek revenge or retaliate. May that be true of us in the small moments of our life as it was for them in that significant big moment. Tomorrow, Tuesday, this year, that by the power of the Spirit, we would live lives like Jesus. We're going to respond this morning by remembering that moment where Jesus died for his enemies, where he gave his life to bless those who for their whole existence had rejected him. And that remembrance comes in the symbolic meal that we're about to share together, the Lord's Supper. The bread and the grape juice that are down the front are symbols of Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was poured out for your forgiveness. And I want to invite those of you who love Jesus, who follow him, to come forward and participate together in this meal as a tangible reminder that God couldn't possibly love you any more than he has. He loved you when you were his enemy. He loved you when you were far. He loves you in your brokenness now. And he's calling you to live such a vastly countercultural life that it will never make sense to this world. But in this symbol, we have the example, the standard, and in the power of the Spirit, we have the source to live this out. And so church, I want to invite you to respond this morning to this God, this enemy-loving, non-retaliating God. As we participate in this meal today, we're going to respond as we sing in worship and we're going to respond in prayer. Our prayer team will be up the back, available for you. Perhaps this morning you would like to receive Jesus. You've, you've never, ever, ever put your faith and trust in Jesus before. And you know this morning that you have been loved beyond measure. Today, don't leave this room without accepting the forgiveness that Christ has for you. Head to the back. Our prayer team would love to lead you in a prayer of repentance to place your faith and trust in Jesus today. If that's you, head to the back, please. Prayer team, we'll also be down the front here after the service for five or so minutes. Any need you have, they would love to pray for you. But I'm going to pray and invite you to stand as we respond and worship this great God this morning. Let's stand together, church. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we are loved. We thank you that you have loved us beyond measure. God, we want to live like this. We want to be your people who will see a city radically transformed as we respond in a, such a countercultural way that people would see your love in action. This is impossibly hard for us to do, God, but we pray. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to be your people, to live this reality tomorrow, next week, next year. God, we thank you for Jesus who bled and died for us, spoken enemies. 
We worship you from that place this morning. Remind us as we share this meal together that we are loved. We ask it in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen.